Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Welcome to RevOps Live number 11. I'm here with our guest, Tony Holbein, the CEO at Growblox. Thank you very much for joining us, Tony. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to dive into this with you. I've got on my team, Jerry Marletta, who runs our delivery team, and Sarah Ra, who is our event producer and does so many other things for our company. Thank you guys both for contributing to this event, as always. And I'm Eddie Reynolds. I'm the founder and CEO of the company, and we're a RevOps consulting firm. That's why we do these events. Really appreciate everybody joining. A little bit on Tony, and then I'll give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. He's the CEO of Growblocks. It's a company that is focused on revenue planning and taking a better approach to revenue operations, all of which we're going to dive into today. I'm going to start with some thoughts and just some best practices on our topic today. Um, then I'm going to give it over to Tony so he can do the same and then dive into an interview. And then from there, we're going to turn it over to the audience. Typically, what we do is we record this entire thing to our podcast so folks can listen to it later and then turn off the recording before we dive into QA in case you guys are having challenges in your business that you don't want the whole world to hear. Um, again, throw that in the chat if you've got ideas on whether or not that's valuable for you or if you'd rather just chat right here while we're recording live for the podcast. Either way, without further ado, we will just go ahead and dive into this. So I'm just going to start with our topic here on how to do better revenue planning and setting better revenue targets. We mentioned in the comments in both Tony's post and my post a bit about the top-down versus bottom-ups approach. The problem that we see so oftentimes with companies and that's so stereotypical is we say we've got to double or triple revenue next year. And so we focus on growing headcount raising quotas, and raising the target for MQLs. And that's fine. It's fine to have a top-down approach. But if we don't think through the granular step-by-step -step process to get there, two things happen. One, we never reach our destination. Just by increasing a rep's quota or hiring more headcount doesn't magically result in more sales. And two, we incent the wrong behavior. We end up seeing more outbound sales activities and more MQLs of far lower quality. We, make, we can make more calls in a day and we can get more people to download our white paper, especially if we put enough money behind it. But that doesn't result in real pipeline. It doesn't result in real sales. It doesn't help our, ramp, our reps hit quota and it doesn't help the company hit their target overall. Tony, I imagine you've got a lot of thoughts on this. So I'm anxious to hear what you have to say. Um, yeah, I think so. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, I'll just dive into this a little bit deeper and then I'll pass the, pass the baton. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that I see here is just the idea of throwing bodies at the problem. It's unfortunately too easy, especially when you're in a hyper growth startup to say, okay, we need to add headcount. And you're not actually thinking about the specific territories and accounts that folks are going to cover. You've got a certain number of AEs, some of whom are hitting quota, and you've got another set of accounts you're going to hand to the next batch of recruits. And the question is, are those folks going to be calling into the same quality accounts? Are they going to be able to follow the same step-by-step -step process that is either working or possibly not working for your existing reps? And is it realistic to expect that they can hit the targets that are set in front of them? All too often, we see these reps calling on subpar accounts or going into territories that are unproven, or just in general, 
running a process that is not what got us here today with extremely high and unrealistic expectations. And so I'm a really strong advocate that we really map out the step-by-step -step process and we think about the accounts we're going to target. We think about how our outbound is going to work. We think about each in individual inbound channel and what that is contributing to our pipeline and also to our close rates and close one business and really map step-by-step -step from there how we're going to get to our plan in tandem with doing the top-down Let's triple revenue approach, which is ambitious and fine, so long as we have an actual path to get there. So I'll stop droning on and I'll turn it over to you, Tony, so you can share some of your thoughts there. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Eddie. So I was thinking actually to maybe tell a little bit of a story and I haven't kind of timed it out. So let's see where I land. Um, but the the reason why I kind of landed on this story actually for for tonight, actually kind of it's not tonight, kind of where, where this is being recorded. Um, but for today's show really is um I feel a lot of people are feeling the pain right now. I feel a lot of people are kind of, you know, seeing next year and seeing that not only is there a lot of uncertainty, but also there's a lot of pessimism, right? The CFO is suddenly starting to be in every every sales call and, you know, sales process and making everything more difficult, right? And the uh, one, one of the things that actually, you know, I had happened to me in my career was a similar crisis, Um not, not, you know, induced by some macroeconomic something, just by us being bad at doing our business and basically kind of having that crisis and managing through that, right? And really the the tier really was um, we raised the Series B, we had this typical, let's say, 3x revenue in the next year, let's go crazy, let's hire lots of AEs and let's, you know, ramp all of them up. Um, and that's how this is going to work out, right? So very much what, what you just kind of touched up on, Eddie. Um, so we did all of that. We had all of those folks and suddenly productivity went from, uh, you know, 80% to 50% or 40%. So no one was hitting quota. Everything was going down the drain. We weren't hitting, you know, revenue targets, but we were definitely hitting cost targets, right? Which then obviously meant burning too much money, uh, suddenly not being able to get to the revenue number that we wanted to get to in order to get to the next funding milestone. And that's when, that's when kind of, you know, some of the, that's basically kind of when the crisis started, right? So the CEO, CFO were pulling the handbrake and they were asking a bunch of people in the business, including myself, so how are we going to get out of this thing, right? And at that point, I was like a sales ops manager or something like that. So super fairly early in into my career. And what what I then ended up doing together with my now co-founder, Olafur, um, he's from Iceland, that's why, you know, it's a funny name. Um, we basically kind of were starting to think of, okay, wait a minute, how how is this revenue thing actually created? How, how do you actually create new customers? How does that process actually look like? And fairly quickly, we came to the realization that um, um, it's, not, it's not AEs. It's not AEs that you hire that create that pipeline, that create those opportunities and then create those customers. They are just one step in that process. Actually, you need to go way further up in the, in the funnel to understand where all of that pipeline, where all of those leads are basically coming from, right? And back in the day, we focused immensely on opportunity creation, right? And we were basically saying, okay, so um, it's not quota, it's opportunities. And it's actually opportunities times conversion rate times, you know, average deal size times some time delay that's behind that. And that was the basic then for, you know, we call it the revenue formula, which is by the way, also the, the name of uh, my show. Um, but uh, we basically kind of realized, hey, that that's actually, that's the key at the end of the day, right? How do we, how can we maximize that that formula at the end of the day. And then we started to say like, well, it's more opportunities. How can we get more opportunities? Um, 
And the next question there then was because we had a fairly tight budget to a large degree, right? We were running out of cash. We needed to get super efficient, super quickly. And then the the idea was like, okay, let's, let's just kind of overlay this with CAC payback. Let's understand, you know, what's our CAC in uh, in the US versus in EMEA versus APAC? What's our CAC payback in, you know, the different channels and inbound, outbound partners and so forth. Um, and then, you know, once we had that matrix, we then realized, hey, wait a minute, we're paying, and in that case, obviously, we're paying a lot more for marketing in the US than we're paying for, let's just say, outbound in, in EMEA, for example, right? And there's obviously always kind of a strategic um, strategic consideration of, hey, we want to break into the US market, so we want to pay a little bit more. But at that point in time, in that crisis, we basically didn't have the chance to kind of keep plowing money into the US. So we then realized, hey, we need, actually need to take some money out of that bucket put this money into this bucket over here outbound in that case and uh, and then scaled up that team right that was that was at that point of time this was a theoretical kind of thinking about it we then pitched this to the CFO CEO um the first reaction from them was laughing at us like yeah sure it's about opportunities uh, it's not about you know the sales reps and the quota don't touch the AEs right um but but suddenly and slowly this started to actually kind of stick with them and what we then started doing which is you know it sounds very very brutal, almost kind of, you know, looking, looking back now, we had to scale down the, uh, the, the marketing team. We had to scale down ad spend. We had to actually scale down the uh, number of AEs because we had too few opportunities in order to feed them. We took all of that money, put it back into channels that worked, were cheaper and were scalable. So we kind of overall kept the same customer acquisition costs, if you will, but we just redistributed it kind of to the more efficient channels. And then what happened is we suddenly started hitting our targets. We suddenly started, you know, decreasing our, you know, customer acquisition cost payback from, I don't know, the mid twenties down to twelve, right? Which is, you know, currently the number also that people are wanting to shoot for again, and and that's really kind of my experience there. That then also led to me going from, you know, sales ops, rev ops to CRO at that company, going to the next company, doing the same playbook, by the way, uh, then selling that one as well, and then basically now founding. Uh, grow blocks, which is very much based on this principle of the operating model that sits in the background that it can use in order to do your revenue planning. That's kind of my little story tee up here, Eddie. Um, uh, and let's uh, let, let's jump into some of the questions that you probably have. I love it. Um, going alongside my comments at the beginning, if anybody has questions in the middle of this interview, feel free to write them into the chat and I or Sarah will try to call on you if we see it uh, at the right time. Jerry, equally, I always feel like I don't give you a chance to chat enough in this because I'm so talkative, but dive in here. I'll even let you ask the first question if you have anything, and if not, I will. No, I, I don't have a question immediately if you've got something. All right, Tony, well, let me start with CAC. So I'm a big believer in trying to remove acronyms for anybody that might be listening that's not familiar with it. Can you explain what it means? Yes. So custom acquisition cost by itself it's really very close to almost equal to your sales and marketing cost, right? Kind of the, the line item you have in your budget that's labeled sales and marketing, that all bunched together, that's your customer acquisition cost. And there's some, you know, it's not an accounting term, so there's some flexibility to it. Um, so everyone, you know, counts the beans a little bit differently. But I think where, and sometimes it's almost synonymous for customer acquisition cost payback, right? So this is really then measuring the time so let's just say you used a million dollars in order to acquire um, a million dollar in ARR. You know, in that case, you would have a full year of uh, payback, right? It's really counting the month or the year of how long it takes to recoup the money that you spent in order to acquire that 
that revenue basically. I think sometimes it's just a fancy way or a SaaS way of saying return on investment. Um, but that's you know that's that's basically kind of how people should be thinking about it. And the I think the the benchmark for uh, depending on the size of a company and your ARR stuff. Uh, but you know, around 15, I think you're doing well. So if you basically acquire revenue at a clip that is slightly higher than 12 months, so one year. Um, some companies last year and before went completely crazy and you know had constantly two or three years of customer acquisition cost payback periods, which basically meant you needed to retain those customers, you know, three years before you were breaking uh, even on that specific acquisition. Yeah, that's really helpful and makes a lot of sense. Um, and ultimately, as we go into a tougher market, we need to get more efficient and we just simply need to be thinking about what is that cost to acquire a customer and is it sustainable? You know, I'm not, I used to work in finance, but I no longer am up to speed on everything. And a couple of years ago, it came out that Casper was basically spending more money just to manufacture their mattresses and market and sell them than they were charging for them. Forget the cost to actually run the company and all the other costs that are involved, but just simply production plus marketing was costing them. I think it was like 11, $1,200 and they were selling the mattresses for a thousand. And so when investors caught wind of this publicly, there certainly had to have been investors that got in before. Um, everybody looked at this and said, wait, how is this a sustainable business model? How do you spend $1,100 to get somebody a mattress and charge them a thousand? Mm. And unfortunately, we see that so often in SaaS right now because of this grow at, growth at all cost mindset that's pervaded the industry for the last many, many years. Absolutely. And I think that's, so I think the trick here though is right to kind of, you know, break it down into an interesting how-to maybe. I think um, a lot of folks will be pressured to still show growth. Um, it won't just be, hey, let's just chill and let's just stay flat for the year. I think that there's still an expectation of growth and there still will be a sales and marketing and CAC budget with it. I think the trick here is to figure out how to shift that around to be most efficient actually, right? And that's that's sometimes when when CFOs and, you know, it happened a little bit in the last couple of months, but it will probably happen also, you know, uh, you know, going into the next year. When they sometimes look at uh, efficiencies, they sometimes don't have the understanding to be nuanced enough to say, actually, we want to cut something from this piece over here, take that money and put it over there to increase overall the efficiency. They're basically cutting across the board. And if you do that, what you basically are doing is, yes, you're reducing your budget and you're saving some money there, which is cool. But at the same time, you're also generating less revenue uh, you know, coming out of this, which then is really not an efficiency gain. It's, 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 it's a cash saver for sure, but it's actually not resulting in this, hey, we want to grow further and longer with the same amount of cash uh, than we previously had. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I guess... My next question is to just dive a little bit deeper into how you were able to improve productivity. Um, you talked about reallocating resources. It sounds like you were letting go of some people, unfortunately, but it has to be done sometimes. Could you dive deeper into that, into some of the details on how you accomplished that? Yeah. So again, the, the realization was um, uh, opportunities. And this was kind of back then, that was kind of our view and it has refined since. But we basically were saying, hey, once something hits an opportunity stage, whether it's one or two or whatever, we kind of said like, hey, they're more or less behaving the same. They're more or less, you know, hitting opportunity and then converting at a certain pace 
at a certain rate for a certain amount of money to a closed one customer. And, and it's not fully true, right? I think there's some nuances here that if you use some of that logic, you need to look into, uh, you know, for example, inbounds convert faster and usually lower than outbounds. Um, and the, the realization though, if you simplify it like that, what you then could basically do is you could ask yourself, okay, let's just assume for a second that those opportunities from all of those channels, they're behaving the same after they become opportunity. So that also means you should be paying the same amount of money per opportunity, right? We're basically saying, what is the cost per opportunity here? And where can we buy the cheaper opportunities, right? That was, that was kind of the... I don't know if this is still making sense, but that was the rationale back then, right? And and to a large degree, it still you know resonates today. Um, and then we kind of looked into, uh, for example, you know, marketing spend and headcount in the US versus marketing spend and headcount in Europe, the opportunities that were coming out of this, and then we could price them in. We could say like, hey, that bucket over here divided by the amount of opportunities coming out of this, this gives us a I don't know, two or $3,000 per opportunity kind of cost, right? It was different in the US from potentially EMEA. And we did the same thing with uh, Outbound. Yeah? So how many SDRs did we have? What is the overhead? What did, you know, manager cost and so forth? What is all of that costing us? And then divided by the amount of opportunities coming out of that pocket. So out of the Outbound team in the US. And we realized, hey, wait a minute, we're only paying, let's just say a thousand bucks per opportunity. So in our head, we were like, hey, wait a minute, we could just, you know, just take some money away from marketing, put it into the outbound team uh, in, in the US in that case, scale that team up, get more of those opportunities for a thousand bucks instead of for 3000 bucks, and basically kind of gain efficiencies through that and then grow the business, uh, you know, longer and or faster with the same amount of cash we had available, right? So that was some of the tactics. Um and I think in a, in a spreadsheet world, that is that is probably the complexity level that makes sense to go through in like a step one. I think for some RevOps folks, uh, you might probably have some issues getting the right financial data. Sometimes from the FP&A team, I think they will be a little bit like, hey, hey, this, you know, you should ask for this stuff. Uh, but if you do this analysis, um, you know, you should do it in a first very simple step. And then you very quickly see, hey, we're spending a lot of money on, uh, you know, per opportunity in this region or territory or segment or on a product, whatever, however you slice and dice your own revenue engine. And then based on that, basically make a decision to, you know, shift things around. And in order to shift things around, you need to have a good idea what you're going to use that money for wherever you shift it towards, right? So on the outbound side, it's kind of straightforward. You hire some more reps and you're right there diminishing, you know, returns in terms of, hey, they're going to get, you know, worse territories and, and worse, worse accounts and so forth. Um, but it's kind of manageable. I think where it's a little bit more difficult and nuance is shifting money towards marketing uh, because usually it's the, hey, we already tapped out of Google search. Um, so we can't, you know, just add more there. So we need to do something else. And sometimes that's a bit more fluffy and tricky and uh, needs more thought, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many variables here that it's hard to make it an exact science, but going through the exercise you just described really prevents organizations from falling into this trap of saying, okay, we've hired all these salespeople. We've got all these different marketing channels going. We've got some vanity metrics going. Everything's working well. We've got revenue growing. We've got more pipeline. We're closing deals, but we're not hitting our goals. Well, let's just go tell marketing they need to generate more MQLs and let's tell sales they need to make more phone calls. Yes. Sorry, like that's not going to do it. Yeah. Um, so this is great what you've shared. Um, so I'll go ahead and like go into some questions here. I'm going to start with Mark McKinley. 
Did we answer your question? If you want to unmute yourself, you can tell us if we did. Yeah, I'm not sure, Tony. I mean, I, I've asked this on you know, multiple platforms and, and I never get mm-hmm. a answer. So, uh, you know, my question is, is there a standard way of calculating CAC? And, and if not, you know, how would you, how would you go about calculating that? Yeah. There is no standard way of calculating it. There are a couple of best practices. I think when you talk to, uh, especially when you talk to investors, they will sometimes, you know, they will sometimes ask the question, is it fully loaded or is there, are you shaving stuff off of CAC? Um, the standard way that I've seen across many companies is basically a sales and marketing overall cost, the whole thing, headcount, ads, tools, manager overhead, all of that stuff. I think if you run a very heavy outbound shop and have, you know, need to kind of hire a bunch of people, it does make sense to include a portion of the recruiting and talent attraction kind of cost in there as well. Um, and then, and this is more of a, uh, now we're going in, you know, profit and loss statement beautification here. Uh, you can make decisions to potentially pull your CS team into CAC as well. I saw some people doing that stuff. I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think it's necessarily super uh, telling sometimes, you know, to really put it into an operational perspective. But those are usually teams that are a little bit pressured on their gross margin. So how much money they need to pay for the revenue. And you usually want to hit like a specific number, 80, 85%. And and then sometimes they feel squeezed to take the CS team out and put it actually into customer acquisition costs, for example. I wouldn't recommend it. I would keep it simple. Um, and then I think the the other complicating factor that sometimes adds to it is you have CAC payback, gross margin adjusted. So I'm sorry, this is getting you know very mathy here. Um, but that's basically kind of where you then include even your CS and your server costs and everything in this whole equation. And I actually just really don't like all of these things that add too much complexity. It reduces how a revenue operator can actually use that metric in order to make a decision going forward. There's just too many variables that could be the reason for something going up and or down. So you would, uh, uh, like the CSM team, any upsell, cross-sell revenue, the expenses around that, you would just separate out and you're looking at... um, revenue coming in from new logo acquisitions and then determine as an organization the costs that are going to make that up on the sales and marketing side. Yeah. Right? Okay. And I think I think at the end of the day, um I think you know once you understand the purpose behind the metric, I think the approach is actually to just be um uh common sense driven. Like okay, so which are the costs that we use in the organization in order to acquire this revenue, right? New biz. Go, go go with that, right? Kind of take take those two buckets and you have a CAC payback there. And then what are the costs in the organization um, that were driven in order to drive, uh, that were used in order to drive upsell potentially, right? And then go and calculate that, right? If you merge those two concepts, by the way, what's going to happen is that your, so your new biz uh, CAC payback is usually going to be four to five times larger than your net retention. So your upsell CAC payback. So if you merge those two things together, you will always show a much, much nicer CAC payback, which is less scalable, right? So you have, you know, you have your 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 customer base and there's, you know, a certain amount of scaling you can do compared to some of the new opportunities that you might uh, be able to uncover. And you would you would divide that cost by um, ASP or lifetime value? Uh, first, first year revenue. That's how I would do it. Okay. ARR. ARR. Yeah. Okay. 
if you go into lifetime, then you have kind of CAC over LTV, this different thing. But anyway, so I'm, you know, I, I hope, I hope I'm not boring. You know, I think, you know, uh, Mark and I have a great conversation here, but I hope I'm not boring anyone else with all of these. <laughs> with all yeah, all I these asked the first here. question, so I, I get that. Yeah, there you go. You got it. Yeah. Tony, yeah. you got super, super mathy there, um, but I liked it. Mark, thank you for your question. Did we answer it in full or did Tony you, you, answer you it in did. full? You did. Thank you. Thank you. Tony, I'm curious if you run into situations where at earlier stage organizations where it may be the sort of leadership owner that's uh, managing, doing most of the prospecting and leveraging existing relationships, uh, and it may be a little bit harder to put a number or a time frame on where those efforts are going and how that impacts being able to measure CAC uh, until the, the company's grown to a point where that's not the case. Yeah. I think CAC in the early days is useless. I think, you know, let's just, let's just say it like that. Um, I think Inside Partners recently released something where they kind of clustered out the different metrics per stage. And I think something like CAC payback is a thing that, you know, once you post 10 million in ARR, I think then it really becomes valuable, sometimes even later. Uh, but before that, it's, um, it's going to be very arbitrary. It's like, okay, how much time does Eddie spend on sales and marketing versus on some of the other things? And then you'd like, well, maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 80%. And, and it's, it's, it's less so impactful actually. And also operation, the, the operational insights are just not that uh, strong sometimes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense too. With the smaller numbers, it's too easy to have the, the actual number swing too far in one direction or the other to even be dependable. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, just piling onto that, like speaking from personal experience and also what we've seen with our customers, Jerry, I think like as companies transition from like that founder led sales to hiring their first sales team, mm -hmm. it's like good luck hiring an AE that is going to be as productive as the CEO. You know, like I came into this, starting this business with a fair amount of sales experience, but uh, my first startup experience was working for a guy with no sales experience and he still crushed me. Cause it was his baby. He spent years building it. You know, he was selling into the industry that he understood. He was selling a solution to a problem that he had solved personally. There's no way that as a new AE to a new company selling into an industry, I wasn't that familiar with at the time that I could possibly compete with that. And I think Tony, you got really mathy and I could geek out with this, uh, on this for a while, but to your point, let's, let's save the audience if they're not interested. But I will say that you raise a really good point in thinking about what the purpose of measuring that for would be. It's one thing if you need to present to investors and that's where leveraging standard norms is really helpful. But if you're trying yeah. to use it for your own internal purposes, what are, you, like, what are you trying to answer here? If you're trying to answer, well, if we put more money into A or B or C, then I think some of those variables that you're talking about can become really valuable. Think about lifetime value. If you're not thinking about that, if you're only thinking about like first year ARR, well, then it doesn't send the entire organization not to be thinking long-term. If you take CS out of things, well, how many reps are selling bad deals? Um, in my organization, which is not a software company, which is not VC funded, uh, the cost of our delivery is the biggest cost by far. Um, so if we didn't take that into account for me to say, oh, wow, like our CAC payback period is, you know, 15 months, like I think we'd be out of business. Uh, yeah. We can't afford that. So I think it really depends on the business and what you're trying to test for to understand ultimately how long does it take our investments in whatever it takes to acquire a customer to pay back in terms of some gross profitability mm -hmm. above and beyond the fixed expenses of the business, which in software, the margins are so high on the variable rate that when you are looking at ARR, that incremental profit that you make from that next sale is almost 
So it makes sense. But there may be people listening to this that are not in the software industry thinking, how do I look at my business in this way too? And that may not apply. Absolutely right. And you know what? I don't have a clue how to run a non-software business. So so I would probably not be the right guy to kind of ask about something like that. I think the... Um, I th so I'm a big fan of uh, keeping some of these things as simple as possible uh, because that increases the operational impact that you can use it for, right? So for example, if you mix LTV in there and there's you know, one problem, what do you do if your net retention is 100% or even north of that, right? Basically, you could afford an infinite CAC payback in that sense. So that's that's a problem right there. And the other one is, hey, now you're mixing in, you know, two or three teams, right? Even CAC payback by itself, having this as one number, you're talking about the whole revenue organization. There's a lot of little bips and bobs that could go wrong everywhere. And really trying to, you know, I think where this is really powerful is not on the overall, it's when you start compartmentalizing and getting narrower and narrower and kind of this is, I wouldn't go by a rep, by the way. I think that's, I think mathematically you can maybe do something like that, but I think that's, that's a little bit crazy. Oh, uh, but generally speaking, you know, go into... You know, at least marketing versus outbound, like 100%. And I think some other things can also be, uh, I would encourage people to try and do this on their uh, Google search, paid Google search. Try and do it on that, actually. Kind of run this through CAC payback, not only return of ad spend, but also the incremental cost you have with an MDR or kind of a kind of an inbound SDR kind of sitting there working on this uh, and how it's being handed through the organization you will probably find a picture that that is pretty ugly that is hidden in just taking the marketing cost as a whole and dividing it by the by the results of that right so i think if you if you can if you have the chops both you know from the finance side and maybe the rev ops side and understanding try and get off get super narrow with this i think it can be super uh, super insightful if 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 you get to do it yeah uh, I absolutely agree with you on keeping it simple, especially as it gets presented to the wider team so they can understand what it really means. Um, at the same time, when you talk about marketing channels, you may have different channels that are at different levels of maturity where one channel has been delivering for a while and another one like this podcast, for example, is sort of more of an experimentation mode. And I think there is a risk that if you mix those things together, it can give you a warped view of reality. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. So I totally agree with that, right? I'm not I'm not this CFO kind of guy that's like, what's the return on investment on this podcast, Eddie? I think that's silly. Uh, but where you have things that are very much down the funnel, which basically paid Google search, uh, you know, review sites, where people basically go, or they have an intent, they want to buy a software, maybe yours. And that's where you can kind of make this one-to-one -one measure. It's much harder to do that with some of the other pieces, right? And and, you know, the results, you know, to be really nerdy, I think those results of, of a podcast like that, you will see them coming in through direct, uh, you know, traffic to your website and maybe branded search. Uh, and this is really the brand that you're building up, right? And it, it's, it will be impossible for a really long time, I think. It will be really impossible to exactly pinpoint, okay, that person came from the show or this person came from, uh, I don't know, the uh, the consult call I had pro bono whatever I think that will be super difficult and you know maybe useless maybe impossible I'm not quite sure yeah it's a whole other topic but I agree um, let me go to the next question so Jessica do you want to ask your question yeah sure hi um, how do you balance maintaining um, a competitive presence about you know amongst competitors 
um, in a high CAC market versus reallocating investment to your higher growth markets that could have a lower CAC? Yeah, great question. I wish I would have like a super snappy answer to that. I think one thing is, um, I think um, let's let's see let's see how I'm going to answer this. But I think ACV in a competitive market and competitive CAC market can be actually a competitive advantage if you think about it, right? If you're able to charge a higher price, you can basically afford to spend more money to acquire that customer comparatively to your competitor. Um, same goes for if you have better net retention or growth retention numbers, right? You can basically have a longer lifetime and you can basically afford to pay more. Um, but then the other thing is also, um, the other thing is that I believe that every, and I think, uh, maybe, uh, Eddie even mentioned this, uh, every channel, um, and every market, um, everything you, everything we do into acquire revenue, even, I think they all follow this S curve kind of momentum, right? You will, you will, uh, you know, start something up. It's going to take a while before you get somewhere decent and suddenly it gets really fast and suddenly it slows down again. And you're like, why is that? Why doesn't it keep on growing? And I think if you, if you neglect uh, adding another S curve, in your case, uh, another growth market on top, I think you will, you know, you will basically shoot yourself in the, in the foot to, to a degree, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the week after, but probably in a year or so from now, right? Uh, because you will need to get through this, uh, you know, terrible period of the the early early phase of the S, <laughs> you know, in this new market before you hit something that suddenly makes sense again. And I think this goes for marketing channels and so many other things as well. So I think, you know, number one, if you can try and, I mean, and the third leg is be better funded than your competitors. Uh, I guess that's that's the other thing, right? Just just have more money in the bank account to 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 be able to kind of push out on, um um, you know, in, in, in that specific market, right? I think those would probably be the three levers I would be thinking about. Um, and then, you know, lastly, not everything is about your marketing budget. Um, I think a lot of, um, I think thinking through some of the positioning of these competitors, maybe they don't have a show. Maybe they don't have a community. Maybe they don't have a PLG offering. Maybe they don't offer a credit card. Maybe they don't, you know, you know, find some of those gaps and trying to, you know, see if if this might be attracting another slice of the market that you can, you know, then go after a little bit cheaper, potentially. Very, very broad, high-level stuff here that I'm kind of throwing out, but maybe, maybe, uh, maybe some of this is useful. Tony, I'll say that that's a really tough question. And uh, it's funny, you keep saying I'm not a finance guy, but uh, I, I was the finance guy and there's nothing you've said that I would disagree with. I think the thing I would add, though, is that, you don't have perfect data. So prior to getting into SaaS about eight, 10 years ago, depending on where you draw the line, I worked in private equity venture capital and we talk about the J curve a lot, right? So mm -hmm. the J curve is that you put money in and then the value of your, your money goes down before it goes up. So I, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, the same applies, especially to launching a podcast or something like that. Like I can, I can tell you the cost. I can't tell you any of the revenue, right? Um, if you had perfect data, then running one of these companies would just be a, you know, a financial exercise. Great. Okay. This channel pays back here and this channel pays back here. And so we're going to just pour everything into this channel. But to your, I think part of the point of your question is, is like, how do you balance maintaining a stronghold in a, in a competitive, but higher CAC market versus going into a new market where you might reallocate capital and it changes multiple variables. I think it's really difficult, especially, I don't know what stage your company is at, but at the early stage, and even at a later stage, it's just so difficult to get reliable data and to analyze that data that you need to use a combination of the data that you have, as well as sort of your gut feel to say like, 
where do we think the winds are blowing and what do we think is going to pay off? And I think where a lot of that comes from is talking to your customers. I know it sounds cliche, but really like Tony, you mentioned like, well, your competitor doesn't have a podcast. Like who cares? Do, do your customers want a podcast? And I didn't do that before launching this. I just thought it'd be fun. So I did it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the companies that are really listening to their customers the best, and then really thinking about how those customers move through the customer journey in ways that you described, Tony, are going to be the ones that are competitive because so many customers, so many companies just aren't doing that or not doing it well. Yeah. And, and I think they're not doing it. So I think there's the data piece and perfect data and Hey, this is all just a game now. Right. I think there's also creative piece and, you know, how do you, how do you use those channels? What he's talking about and what awesome product are you building? Um, but it's, um, uh, I, I think balancing this out is, is sometimes really the difficulty. So it's like, it's to, to your point, it's, it's really difficult to kind of give like a, you know, one size fits all uh, answer to this problem. Do you have any wisdom for testing and learning to share or stories? So there's there's a bit of a difference between um, let's just say some marketing tactics and some 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 more traditional channels, right? I think what I would really let's just say you were to do, and maybe it doesn't fit with your specific case, but let's just say you were to do, hey, we were reliant on inbound and now we're doing outbound, you know, adding this to the mix. Let's just say that's what you're doing, or you're adding enterprise, like a different segment. I think thinking through how long it will take to actually result in something, I think that should be part of your equation here, right? And and this is both hiring people, getting the setup right, uh, you know, getting them to perform at a certain, a certain pace, but then also realizing, okay, and now that this, this part is working, how long does it actually now take that this opportunity, you know, closes, right? And if you're in a mid-market situation, you will, you know, easily add three months on top. If you're in an enterprise situation, you're easily adding nine to 12 months on top, right? So the the the, the difficult thing here is, or the, the wisdom I had to add here is, um, you know, go into this with open eyes and don't give up too early. If, you, if you're cutting, for example, an enterprise motion and trying to break into an enterprise segment and you're cutting this after six months, you're basically being silly about it because there was no chance in hell that you know you could have actually seen those results in that time frame. Yeah, I'll second that. I think the most important thing in testing these strategies is setting the time frame and then also just thinking about how do you measure success along the way? What are your leading and lagging indicators? So Tony, you use your example of going enterprise and you're six months in and you're going to abandon the program or doing that with a podcast is an even more common example. Um, however, I would argue if you went into the enterprise and after six months, you hadn't booked a single meeting, that might be a case where you want to say, we really need to reevaluate this. Um, you know, you have a, a podcast, like you can look at, uh, I don't mean to lean into that. It's just that it's top of mind since we're here today. Um, you lean into how many listeners, how many subscribers you've got. Um, you're on social media. You can, you can look at the vanity metrics. If you're posting on LinkedIn every day and you're still getting one like two years in, it's probably not going to pay off. Um, but as you see things trending upward, I think, you know, you give it that time period to test it. And also you give it the time period to reevaluate because if you're trying something very new, you may not be able to say, okay, we're going to give this six months and then we're going to get this much revenue out of it in six months, or it's a failure. You might be three months down and then say, okay, wow, like we're getting more visibility. We're seeing more traction. We still don't know what this is going to be yet. Um, this is where I think Chris Walker's revenue R&D framework is really interesting. You might want to check that out where his company is really focusing all of their energies as a marketing agency on solving this exact problem and trying to bring a framework to market where they say, let's 
continue running strategies that are working while experimenting with new strategies so that we can stay ahead of the curve. I love that we've got so many questions here. Chris, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, sure. I think we may have uh, covered it off a bit when when we were working on uh, on Mark's question, but it was just about differentiating marketing spend and, and any costs associated with new customer acquisition versus versus growth revenue. It, it doesn't sound like there's any single best practice or any single method to to calculate CAC in that regard. By the way, love love all the math. Good. So I think I think there are standards developing, but it's it's not like there is a standard. For example, if you if you look up uh, churn definitions, even of public companies, you will find they have twenty or thirty different churn definitions. By the way, and you basically have the same thing going on with CAC to a degree. Um, but again, I would I would follow the what makes sense in your organization and um, and use that operationally for making decisions based on that. And then being just very transparent to an investor or to the board on how you calculate it in the first place. I think what's really not cool is changing the definition all the time um, and or starting to sneak stuff away, you know, out of the out of the CAC in order to, you know, make those numbers work out in a in a better way. That's those are, you know, while there are no standards, there's certainly no goals. And then and that would be one of those. Got it. Thank you. It's also just interesting to think about like what customer success includes. Right. So are we just talking customer service? Do we have dedicated renewals or is that done by the sales team? Who's responsible for upsell and growth? Um, when I worked at Salesforce, I was an account executive and I covered new and existing business and I did everything except customer service. Um, we had dedicated renewals managers, but if there was an opportunity there to grow the account, I would take over the renewal myself. I would do all of the you know upselling myself. Of course, I had a million people at Salesforce to help me do this, but the cost of retaining and growing that customer was a big part of my compensation um, between salary and commission. And then on top of that, I also brought in new business. So you could look at it through a couple of different lenses because Salesforce has a real serious, you know, cost of uh, sales associated with just their existing customers. And many companies can say the same. Yeah. I sometimes, and maybe this is my European perspective. By the way, I spent three years in the in New York, so I'm you know I I, I know the U.S. Uh, no, but um, uh, maybe that's my European perspective. Sometimes, kind of throwing out the Salesforce example is really misleading because not all companies kind of can operate like Salesforce does by now. Um, so uh, you know, a while back I was talking to his name Steinman Steinman from uh, from Gainside actually kind of chief evangelist officer from Gainside and it's actually asking him the same question so what what is the standard how do you organize this you know do you have CS folks doing the renewal and the upsell is it the AMs is it the original AE um and we actually discussed that it depends on the segment uh you know terrible terrible you know answer to give because it's a little bit more complicated but basically if you have an enterprise segment uh, the new biz rep that basically spent nine months to a year building a relationship with that account should ideally stay on the account, right? And then kind of drive the renewal, drive the upsell, you know, build the business case to kind of grow further into the account. There should be a CSM, enterprise CSM kind of type supporting, uh, but the A should be in the driver's seat. Um, but as you go down, down in your segments, down market in the mid-market, uh, basically motion, you maybe have two months, maybe three months where an AE was handling 20, 30, 40 different opportunities. 
And you can't really say that there's a strong relationship built between the AE itself and the account, right? This is more than a factory line. And you basically want to make sure that the AE is focused on new logos all the time. In that situation, it would actually hand it over to the CSM who's responsible for the renewal and an AM team that is not having the same book of business approach, but is basically helping on some of the harder closes, right? Which, which the CSM, usually you don't want to become the... Uh, hey, you know, it's the last day of the month. I need the signature here. Otherwise, I'm going to, you know, I'm in trouble. If if the CSM is saying that, then some of the trust and the connection between the CSM and the customer is kind of broken. So that's why you rather want to have some kind of a sales guy sometimes kind of, you know, fronting that. Um, and that, so, and then basically in the SMB, basically either none or have kind of growth CSM set up to manage a large portfolio in an automated fashion. Um, but that's what's actually kind of what we what we ended discussing. It's funny. I get so much flack for using Salesforce as an example when I talk about startups. But what I would say is that because they have like a person in every single role, it can provide a helpful framework to think about how you do that in a small organization where ultimately people are going to have to wear multiple hats. I think the thing I'll always say is, is like, okay, if you have an organization and you don't have a CSM, you don't have a renewals manager, you don't have rev ops, you don't even have a Salesforce admin, it doesn't matter. Somebody is like doing that job to some level of mediocrity or not. Yes. Um, so, you know, if we think about like our company, our revenue team is like me and Jerry, maybe, I mean, Jerry's increasingly responsible for all existing customers and retention and growth. So I shouldn't take that away from him. And then I'm mostly new business. Um, and it's just the two of us and we're constantly thinking through that. Right. But at the same time, like somebody's got to think about like, how do we make sure renewals happen? Somebody's got to think about how do we expand our existing customers? Somebody should be thinking about how do we ask our existing customers for referrals? And I posted recently a framework for this that I saw work really well at Salesforce in that because I was managing existing accounts, I could ultimately make the discretionary decision on who was going to play what role on an account by account basis. And I would look at it through this framework, which I never thought about until I wrote it down and I'll have to try to remember it. But basically I put it into four categories. You have a customer that's either healthy or unhealthy, and there's either a sales opportunity or there's not. So if you have a healthy customer and there's a sales opportunity, it's super simple. You just have the account manager try to sell them. And they're the one like banging the phone at the last day of the month. Like I need the signature, right? But if you have a, an unhealthy customer and there's a sales opportunity, you really need to partner between the account executive and the CSM or whomever in the organization is responsible for getting that customer healthy again. In our case, with our tiny little team, it would be Jerry right? Doesn't have the title of CSM, but who else is going to do it, right? Um, if you have a customer that is healthy and there's no sales opportunity, then you pitch that to a renewals manager. Most startups are not going to have a renewals manager. So then I would just ask who's responsible for renewals in our organization. That's Jerry again. Um, and then if you have an unhealthy customer where there's no sales opportunity, that's really just, um, CSM and hopefully they can like turn it around and make that customer healthy again so that sales and renewals can step in. And if they can't, then you probably don't stand a chance. Yeah, I, th I think so. I, I think that makes intuitive sense. There's obviously some details on kind of how do you kind of manage those people and how do you assign that stuff. But, you know, to to your earlier point of like, if you, if you don't have someone that's doing RevOps, if you don't have someone doing the CSM work or the AM work or whatever, you still have someone doing that work, right? And and I think that um, that degree of specialization that you're going through, you know, per market or as a company and so forth to kind of, you know, maybe find the way back a little bit. Um, 
that is actually also sometimes the reason why you then end up needing revenue operations, right? All of those handovers between those roles, all of these connections that suddenly need to be managed, none of this is only in one hat, suddenly it's in 20 hats, and then there's very specific performance goals for that, right? That is that is sometimes then how that, you know, increased complexity is trying to be managed through someone, you know, for example, in revenue operations, using tools, using data, using processes and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I completely ignored the fact that I could log into Salesforce and I could see exactly when the renewal was and exactly how healthy the customer was. So I could literally make a judgment call and say, okay, here's all the accounts that I'm serving. Am I going to call like the last customer on the list in terms of customer health? Is that the per? Oh my God, I can't wait to get on the phone and hear them tell me how much they hate Salesforce and how it doesn't work and they've got all these problems. If my only objective in my role is to hit quota, Unfortunately, is that the first customer that I'm going to call? I mean, maybe, mm. maybe there's a huge sales opportunity, but yeah. if not, uh, and I think, you know, any account executive that's ever done this learns this the hard way. Like you try to steer clear of those conversations if possible, because they can really suck you in. Yeah, absolutely. Jerry, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this. Put you on the spot. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, being that CS is, is kind of my, my full-time role for, for me, it, it's, it's not so much a prioritization issue just based on the volume of customers just yet. Um, so yeah, I don't know as though that's something I'm quite as struggling with. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think it's just interesting as our business grows just to continue to think about like what that step-by-step process is so that things don't start to slip through the cracks. Yeah. Well, and, and to get ahead of it so that when we are there, we're not coming up with it when it's too late. Yeah. Tony, I'm going to turn this back. I'm trying to think about what question I have next, because I think we've covered a lot here. I'm going to ask you if there's a question that I didn't ask that you or a topic that you wanted to cover. So, I mean, we talked about bottom-up planning and maybe some people are interested in bottom-up planning. Let's do that. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, I think we kind of dance around the topic just a little bit. Um, and I think what's, what's really, what I've seen, and that usually then goes wrong, if this is usually the planning bit is driven by finance. And finance usually thinks about the world in a you know financial sense. Um, and I think what they're then sometimes glossing over are these really important little details that uh, that I you know that are basically key for for us from the revenue side, from the revenue operations and revenue operator side, right? Um, and the the you know the typical example that I sometimes kind of stumble over, there's like, hey, we want to grow to 10 or 100 or 50 million of ARR. This is how many customers we therefore need. This is how many opportunities we need. And this is how many MQLs we need, right? And and this then usually, when, when this is being then used to set targets, right, which is kind of the wrong way around, what that then leads to, and this is kind of your your, your post actually from, from, from yesterday, Eddie, is total, you know, misalignment between sales and marketing. And I think it's actually sometimes funny to say, well, the reason for misalignment between sales and marketing is not that sales and marketing don't like each other. It's actually whoever set those targets was, you know, you know, the evil, the evil finance people in that sense. And, and the reason is obviously, and this is, you know, my, my favorite go-to, if you think about, if you think about MQLs and if you think about the top-down way of setting targets for MQLs, what's going to happen is that the CMO of VPR marketing is get their, you know, MQL target. Um, they obviously have to double or triple this compared to last year. The, you know, 90% of the money out of last year's MQLs came out of demo requests, true hand raisers or trial requests or whatever, you or quote requests or whatever it is. But in order to hit then that MQL number, which this VP marketing is kind of being asked to, then you know, basically kind of they flood everything with, uh, you know, white papers or webinar down, uh, uh, signups or wh- whatever you might have, right? Which is 
not even actually what the CMO of VP marketing actually wants to do, but that's what the, you know, what the target setting says, like, Hey, create those MQLs. But then those are then being passed over. Obviously the performance of those MQLs is completely different uh, and therefore then opportunities and revenue doesn't follow, you know, from that. And I think what you really need to do instead is you just need to turn all of this stuff on its head actually. Uh, and instead of trying to get at the number from a, Hey, this is how many customers we need. This is how many opportunities we need. It's, I think there should be guidance from the top down. I think that, you know, we don't need to kid ourselves and be like, Hey, you know, we're going to come up with how many, how much we're going to grow this year. I think this would always be a board or a CFO or CEO conversation, but then basically kind of using that as a, okay, that's where we want to go to here. Are all the things we're going to do in order to get there. Right. And that might be hiring people, uh, you know, especially on the, you know, revenue and pipeline producing ones might be outbound folks might be AEs. Um, and then also what are the different marketing channels and campaigns we actually want to do in order to get there, you know, and not a, Hey, we're going to, we think we're going to add a thousand MQLs, but Hey, we think you know, on the, on the demo request side, we can scale this by 20 or 30% because that's just the limitation that we're seeing in the market. And if you calculate that through, that actually means we need to drive a lot more MQLs from somewhere else, right. And, or someone else needs to pick it up. And, you know, once you break it all down into the different, you know, regions and channels and, and, and so forth. I think only then you have a true chance of actually trying to hit that number at the end of the day, right? Because then basically for revenue operators, there's almost like a checklist. It's like a to-do list that you can execute throughout the year and understand, okay, we wanted to hire, you know, those folks over that time period. Did it happen? No. Okay. Well, now we actually need to hire even more in order to, you know, you know, catch up on the already lost revenue that, you know, that we saw in the first quarter, right? And once you have that conversation, um, I think you're off to a much better start for the next year, actually, and and really kind of uh, in, a, in a position to execute on something, right? Which you simply don't have in a, in a top-down world. And I would love to hear uh, kind of your, your thoughts on this, Eddie, as well. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you hit on it really well. And as I was listening, I'm like, what can I possibly add to this? And the main thing that I would say is, I would just want to go as deep as I possibly can. So if you think about it channel by channel, um, team by team, uh, I'm not saying rep by rep, but if you've got like enterprise reps and SMB yeah. reps, like yeah. that's a big difference. Yes. Um, I had Doug Landis on, on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, who is, um, uh, <clears throat> he works at Emergence Capital, helping their portfolio companies grow. And he told a story about working with one of their portfolio companies. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they wanted to double or triple, triple revenue. And in order to get there, they needed to land 16 enterprise customers. And he said, to date, they had landed one. <laughs> He's like, okay, so like, how are we going to get there? Like, I don't know yeah. that like I would sign up for that plan if I was in the the shoes of the VP of sales. Um, and we can take that, that logic across the entire revenue funnel. If we think about um, paid ads, I'm not an expert in paid ads. Maybe you double your spend on, on Google ads and you get double the same quality of leads. I don't know, maybe. But let's say that we've built up an email list over years that have people like the folks on this podcast that actually wanted to hear from us. And we say, okay, well, we're going to send twice as many emails by buying the, you know, a bunch of contacts from Zoom info. Can we really expect the same results there? How, how is email going to drive, drive more, more pipeline? Um, the MQL number itself, like breaking that down and how are we going to drive more hand raisers given that that is really what's driving our revenue. And then of the rest, 
of all the folks that hit our, our lead score and end up being passed over to the SDRs to get hammered with phone calls, let's really think step-by-step at how that results in more pipeline because just getting more people to download more white papers, especially if we're not hiring more headcount and SDRs, and even then possibly not, is going to result in the pipeline that we need. Then we can even think about the pipeline itself and different types of pipeline may have drastically different close rates. You know, the folks that are coming in as the hand raisers from certain segments may close at a certain rate. And the folks that downloaded a white paper that the SDRs call down on may close at a completely different rate, even for those folks that are become qualified opportunities. Um, And so I would just break it down channel by channel and tactic by tactic to develop an actual plan to say, okay, we need 16 enterprise accounts next year what exactly are we going to do and who's going to do it? And when do we need to have them hired by? And so Eddie, I have a, ramped up I have a, yeah, I have a question for you. Who should be doing this? Oh, that's a, such a good question. Um, so I've had this question myself, like, is this the responsibility of the VP of revenue operations or somebody else, that level of seniority or the CRO or other folks? I think that in revenue operations, you tend to have people that are better with data and numbers. So I vote for taking a first pass at having RevOps try to provide some of that framework that I shared because they may have the time and skills to do it. Certainly the CRO and other executive leaders need to be part of this process, but they may not be the best people to go be diving deep into data analysis. So absolutely, right? And I think, and you know, I saw someone, I think it was Mark kind of commenting on, hey, it should also be RevOps. The what I sometimes see though is, you know, planning. If someone uses the word planning and it's not from the CFO's office, then it's like, oh no, you shouldn't own that. Um, and then the then the question really is like, but how how will I teach you, dear FPA person, how all of this revenue engine stuff actually works, right? Because only if you have that understanding and you're able to kind of, you know, tie this together in your head. Can you actually start, you know, turning the knots and kind of understand, okay, how does all of this hang together? And, you know, where can we invest and where should we invest, right? And I totally agree. It's a it's a total RevOps responsibility, uh, but I feel sometimes it's not it's not put to the team, actually, or it's more, it's more that RevOps needs to bully their way into the process because they're trying to support the, you know, may it be the CRO, but sometimes the VP sales, VP marketing, whoever, right? I think it also depends a lot on the seniority of each individual. So Chris wrote down, like, I think it should be a small committee and I vote for that. But um, given the fact that we're hopefully hiring uh, a senior VP of RevOps in the very near term, we've just gone through interviewing like God knows how many people and just the spectrum of skills that we've seen just in this last round of interviews is, is incredible. Um, and I'd say the same thing about finance folks. Um, you can have somebody that's an accountant that doesn't understand any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, there's at least one CFO that's coming to mind right now that's worked in like five or six startups and brought them through to exit. Like, yeah, he understands all this stuff really, yeah. really well. Um, I would just say that the person who should be analyzing the data and bringing that framework to that committee to say, here are our conversion rates. These are our hand raisers. This is what this channel is doing. Mm-hmm. That I think should fall on RevOps. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I'm not sure if there's some other uh, opinions or something like this around the the, the the table here that could be fun. But I, I mean, I, I 1000% agree. And, you know, when... When I was talking to my CFO and it was like, hey, Tony, you need to do 20 million, you get 25 in order to get there. Um, and I was like, okay, how, how is that going to happen? Then they just looked back and it's like, didn't we hire you for that? And it's like, yes, yes, you did. 
But you know, where's my planning staff? How am I actually going to, you know, figure this out? And in the end, obviously, so coming from the RevOps space and even, you know, even being a little bit of FPA before, obviously then sat down, built the spreadsheet and kind of figured it out, right? But it's, I feel it's sometimes still not an inherent revenue-sided responsibility to actually do the true, you know, bottom up. And and if you then do it, um, and you then go back to the finance team and says, hey guys, I'm not quite, you know, yes, we want to go there. I totally get it. I don't actually see a path to get there. Then it's like, okay, cool. Thank you for your opinion. We're still going to go where we said we're going to go because we already told the board, right? And I think this is also just some maturity that we're an organization. And I feel also CEOs need to wake up and be like, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't actually work. So, you know, let's let's start balancing these things out a little bit. Well, and that seniority comment applies to the CEO too. You know, you could have a CEO that's 21 and their first uh, first rodeo, or you could have a CEO that's exited five companies. I think yeah. they're going to approach that very differently. Oh, I, th- yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think you're totally right about that. Yeah. I mean, Tony, what you said is so stereotypical and it's really interesting because, you know, if I try to put myself in the shoes of a VP of sales or a CRO, first of all, most of them aren't that aren't that numbers oriented. Secondly, they're not that great with Salesforce and other tools. Thirdly, that's not their job. Fourthly, they don't have time. Like, shouldn't you be out, you know, recruiting, hiring and onboarding, training reps and helping them close deals? And that's if you're just overseeing sales. You know, if you're overseeing marketing and customer success, you've got even more, more places to spread yourself thin. But so oftentimes we see that conversation you described happening where the board and the executives are saying, we need to hit this number. We need to 3X revenue, figure out how to do it. That's your job. And then even if you have the skills to go in and analyze that data to try to understand what do we need to do in each marketing channel? What does each sales team and each sales rep need to do in order for us to get to that number? First, without RevOps in place, oftentimes the data is just incredibly dirty and untrustworthy. And even if you have that data, I think to really get meaning out of it, it requires somebody to just have some deep concentration over a a significant period of time to look through each of those and think like, what are our actual conversion rates? When we change this variable and we turn the knob up 2X or 3X on this particular marketing channel or hire more reps, what does that do? How long does it take these reps to onboard? If we go into a new marketing channel, what can we actually expect? And that just is not easy work. It's not something that a VP of sales that just blocks an hour in their calendar can do. It's not something that like the Salesforce admin you hired with three years experience may be able to just figure out on their own. I guess this is where I say then you need to go on and buy Roblox, but no, absolutely. I think, I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. Um, and I think the, what I think sometimes is disheartening is this, um, you know, let's just say you overcome all of those channels, uh, challenges, right? You overcome the data problem in your Salesforce. You realize, Hey, Salesforce is not all encompassing. There's stuff that happens before there's stuff that happens after. And we actually need to take the whole funnel into account, right? Maybe you get all of that organized. Maybe you have a logic behind it. Maybe even kind of start driving it from an initiative level. So who, whom do we want to hire? You know, what projects do we want to execute and so forth? You do all of that work. You go back to, you know, the CFO and you say, Hey, there's a, there's really big gap here and I don't know how to solve it. Then you know you still fall on deaf ears. It's like, well, you know, it's, sorry, you know, the ship has sails, and 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 you know who's, and this is obviously in my 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 point here. Sometimes, who's gonna get fired at the end of that year? Is it is it gonna be the CFO who pushed that plan through, or is it gonna be VP sales that had lazy sales reps and need to be replaced because you know someone 
someone can probably deliver this versus you know that uh, guy or that lady, right? Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I think it's so stereotypical that it ends up being that VP of sales. Yeah. Um, and what what does that do for the company? So they bring on another VP of sales to try to do the same thing all over again. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, I mean, especially for next year, I think um, I think many many organizations will need to change their playbook just a little bit. I think many CFOs potentially might even be a bit more conservative and potentially even open to those arguments of like, hey, there is a gap and we don't know how to how to bridge it. Um, so let's see how how some of that shifts next year. Actually, um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful. Let's see. Um, but but certainly, you know, once we're through the through the winter, um, and you know, we're you know, we're done hibernating. Um, I think the same game will happen all over again, right? You will have investors that are really bullish. You will have a lot of money pouring into the market, and you will have people saying, "Hey, in order to keep our valuation up, because next milestone needs to be unicorn." We need to, you know, we need to follow the triple, triple, double, double, uh, you know, table here. And apparently we're at double right now, right? And that's how those decisions mostly are being made without the understanding of how is it actually going to get there. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about that possibility. I don't know that I'm that bullish on the markets and the availability of capital next year. Um, but as I the said- The year after, the year after. Oh, you're talking 2024? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean- I've seen this cycle. I mean, I helped raise private equity and venture capital funds back in, what was it? 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. And that was still a tough market. We were still coming off the financial crisis. And there was a time where it was like, oh, is VC working in aggregate? Mm -hmm. And then everything bounced back and you see these... Um, you see these same things happening and the reason for it, and I didn't understand this until I started focusing all of my energies calling on institutional investors in that role, is that at the end of the day, endowments and pension funds and all the organizations that control all the money in the world are literally staffed with people whose sole job is to figure out where to put that money and they've got to put it somewhere. So regardless of what's happening in the markets, they have to figure out where that money goes. And when something like venture capital is booming, they keep pouring more and more money into it, regardless of whether or not there are sufficient investment opportunities for that money to go into. And then of course, more and more people say, I want to run a VC fund and they start one. Not that it's easy to raise money for a new fund, um, but that's how it how it goes. And then dynamic shift, but the, it keeps going up and down. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, you know, we're drifting a little bit into kind of the VCP space here. But the the other thing that then happens is there's easy access to capital for those VC guys. Um, and then basically it becomes almost a race. How quickly can I spend all of that cash, Right. It's, it's, you know, think about it as like a sales cycle. If your fund cycle is five years, you have one fund that you distribute over five years. If you're able to take that same amount of cash distributed in one year, you're able to raise another fund and another fund and another fund. And yes, you have management fees and you have, you know, returns on all of that stuff, carry all of that, all of those cool words here. Um, and that was a lot of the incentive actually driving this, right? Then you have the rounds go up, you have everyone kind of overbidding each other. And all of that, all of that house of cards is kind of crumbling down in the current in the current environment to a large degree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I won't geek out on private equity because it may not be relevant for people here if we go too deep. But I think if you just think about it in simplistic terms, it's similar to buying a house. We saw what's happening, to, what's happened to the housing market recently. It's really fundamentally no different with any other purchase or investment. 
ultimately, like when the tides shift and there's not as much money pouring into the market, it's just by default going to go to the more efficient companies. So the company that raised, there's, there is a company that raised money last year. I'm not thinking of a specific company. There's many of these that just wasn't operating very efficiently, didn't have as many growth prospects, was spending a lot of money to acquire customers. And yet was still able to attract investment from VCs at an extremely high valuation because those VCs were simply not able to get their hands on a better investment. That's not the case now. Now, they are going to have a lot more supply of investment opportunities in comparison uh, to the demand for capital. And the companies that run more efficiently, regardless of the market, are going to be able to raise capital and continue to grow. And you're right to the point you made earlier, Tony, the VCs are still going to want growth. That's their business model. You can't make Mm -hmm. money in VC by pouring money into a company that's not growing. Mm -hmm. It's not private equity. And I think one of the reasons why I'm a little bit kind of you know, not sure how next year is going to pan out. Um, I think a bunch of, so there were we cuts uh, over the last couple of months. Um, but I think around summer, fall next year, I think a bunch of startups are going to simply run out of cash. I think at that point, you know, you can't, you can't cost cut yourself sometimes into profitability. They're still burning cash. They won't be able to have access because they couldn't show growth and so forth. And I think this is, you know, especially if you're selling to startups, if you, if this is your market, I don't know, Eddie, maybe this is this is just the bane of both of us. Uh, but I think a lot of a lot of teams around that time, I think um, they will probably stop simply stop existing, right? So, and I think that's that will be kind of a, uh, I think that will be pretty shitty uh, shitty situation coming up there in the next what is that nine to twelve months. Yeah, well, so think about it this way, and I hope this is valuable for people in RevOps because I do think it's it's relevant. If you think about this from an investment perspective, um, every decision is a decision, even a no decision, right? So if you're you know, sitting on your stock in Apple and you decide not to sell it, you're making a decision every day that you want to buy back into Apple stock. If you hoard cash under your mattress, every day you're investing in US currency. This concept applies to our topic today in that we have just established how inefficient it is to just throw a bunch of money at a bunch of different strategies without actually looking at the CAC and payback and all of the things that go into that. Equally, it's just as foolish to just start making cuts without looking at them in the same way, right? So we've got some things that are working and some things that are not working, and we're just going to make broad cuts across the board. We're seeing that happening as well. We got to lay off a bunch of salespeople. We got to cut marketing, et cetera, et cetera without looking carefully at which of these things are actually working. Yeah. And I think RevOps actually plays a role here, right? And I think, um, I'm not quite sure how many RevOps folks specifically we have on the call, but I I, I do believe if, if your main focus is being kind of a system admin, you know, pulling reports, calculating commissions, kind of RevOps profile, I think there's a much larger danger to your role probably next year versus actually being one of the few people that understand the end-to-end revenue engine and are able to inform some of those tweaking decisions of, hey, we actually shouldn't be cutting here because of X. We should invest that money over here because of Y, right? And if you're part of that conversation, if you can drive value like that, I think your, your importance as revenue operations and also fulfilling this whole driving efficiencies, right? Really kind of this is the large premise of revenue operations that sometimes is 
just being thrown out and less severely being lived up to. If you're able to live up to something like that, I think you also the the standing in the organization will change, right? I, I think people will not look at you as the CRM person. I think people will look at you as a, you know, I don't want to say this, you know, trusted advisor, or business consultant, but something like that. Someone that is, you know, more strategic, more understanding of the end-to-end -end thing um, and can actually use that in order to either make money or, or save some money for the organization. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of getting into the concept of a cost center versus a revenue center. And I think that like Jerry and I can attest from personal experience that when a company's tight on money, it's really easy to just say, well, let's stop just spending a bunch of time tweaking Salesforce and our other tools. I mean, when people have the, the resources, a lot of that work are things that are not important and not urgent. I think a big thing that we're trying to do now, having learned this the hard way, is get our customers to focus on what are top priorities instead of just pitching requests over the fence. So if somebody's in that junior Salesforce admin role, most of the time when I talk to folks in that, in that space, even junior RevOps, most of their time is spent just fielding requests and answering questions and making updates across all their tools that don't necessarily move the needle. And there is a danger that as companies start to cut, they're going to look at that and say, well, we could cut that. We can get by with the tools we have for the next six to 12 months. So absolutely. And then there's also, you know, if, I don't know, this is this is some, I don't know, this is an inherent problem with RevOps sometimes. You're so focused on the tool, you're kind of tweaking everything and suddenly like, hey, um, there's nothing more to tweak. Well, what should we do? Well, let's buy another tool, right? So what, <laughs> what's, what's the purpose? Why do we need this thing, right? And And I think, and I think this is where where RevOps just needs to get you know out of this thing, right? And kind of have the let's step one level up. Let's look at this. Is this adding value? Is it adding enough value for my time, for my salary, and so forth? I think this is um, there's still an opportunity for RevOps to just be a little bit more grown up, actually, in that that regard, instead of just being kind of a uh, kind of a task taker, request taker, right? <clears throat> Couldn't agree with that more. I think we've got another question. Uh, Mark, do you want to dive in with this? I, I, I do. So, so Tony, I think, uh, you know, I, I hear people talking about, um, you know, the magic number, you know, for SaaS. And I think that's what you were kind of talking about early on in the call, right? You know, the ARR divided by, you know, customer acquisition cost. Um, so I just want to, one, confirm that. Is that correct? I don't think magic number is the same as CAC, uh, CAC payback. Actually, I'm actually currently not 100% sure what the magic number is, by the way. But the, there's there's a there's there's a term reserved for uh, the magic SAS number, which I'm I'm actually not sure how it's being defined right now. Yeah, I thought, and, and I may I, I mean I may be wrong, but I thought it was like ARR divided by customer acquisition cost. Um, I, I could be wrong on that. Um, but that that aside, you know, just so just curious, you know, when when working with early stage companies, seed maybe even you know mm -hmm. probably Series A, right? You know, sub one million in revenue. Yep. Um, you know, what's your thoughts on you know looking at sales efficiency versus you know we got to acquire these we we need customers, right? We we need to get revenue in the door, and and as that number uh, increases the number of customers in ARR, you know, th then we've got at least a decent sized data set. We can start testing out, you know, product market fit, um, start looking at other things, you know, before we take in, you know, sales efficiency, you know, into mm -hmm. factoring, you know, so that's probably a long way of saying is, 
you know, so do you think that's something that should be looked at from the very beginning, or do we need to have a certain size of a company revenue or customer numbers before, you know, sales efficiency really kind of. I think, yeah, I think sales efficiency is the thing you should really be looking at post 10 million, you know, maybe a little bit before, maybe leading up to this. I think when people talk series B, series C, they're probably definitely going to ask those questions. I think before that, um, a more helpful way to think about the world, I think it's actually burn multiple um, because you can kind of, you can kind of manage that. So, so let's just say you raised um, 6 million, 5 million, whatever, you know, last time um, people want you to hit a burn multiple of two, which apparently is then basically the 5 million divided by two, right? And then they get to two and a half. So the idea is, you basically use 5 million in burn in order to grow your company, you know, buy another two and a half million, right? And the cool thing about it is um, it does include all the different costs, right? Because we're talking burn here, we're talking bottom line in the end. And you can balance that out. You can you can grow a little bit slower by having a smaller team. If that's necessary, you can grow a bit slower by, you know, maybe not being so aggressive, maybe relying on organic channels, maybe relying on some things that you don't need to push out in order to kind of to get through the year. And I think. So when when I talk to uh, you know my my investors, um, they're basically now saying doubling next year is good, surviving is enough. You know, it's like it's not this. Hey, you need to triple, otherwise you're uninvestable. It's very much hey, if if you're doubling, you're probably you know top ten percentile. Uh, if you're growing a little bit slowly but not dying, that's that's also a good thing, right? So I think it's important. You know, yes, the expectations on the investor side but it's important to balance them out with the reality of running out of cash, right? And I think a lot of people understand that also on the investment side. And I think, you know, looking back, you know, 12 months ahead and then looking back, I think the expectations of how companies are growing, they will be just a little bit different. And sure, there will be outliers that maybe even grew faster because of it, right? COVID was one of those things. A couple of companies grew much faster uh, and some, some suffered. I think it will be the same thing here. But I think the the reasonable argument is to think about how much money do I have left in the tank? Um, you know, how how much can I grow with that? And look at it across the full spectrum, not only sales and sales and marketing and sales efficiency, for example, right? I think that is at that point is not important. When it will become important is when your go-to-market fit is established, you know exactly how to scale, you know exactly what is repeatable. And then the reason why you want to be sales efficient is because a venture capitalist might look at you and say, like, okay. I'm going to give you 20 or $30 million. And if I process it through your machine, how much money do I get out of it, right? And that's where sales efficiency is really important because you need to kind of take basically how much of the, of the 20 or 30 million will get lost in transition kind of while, while, while I kind of push it through your machine. That's where this is a really important you know, aspect. I think leading up to that, it's, um, it's, uh, it's less so important and kind of you know, surviving number one you know, I think for many teams, this will be an actual consideration um, and then showing some growth and maybe using this burn multiple, you know, just look it up and kind of maybe try and apply it, um, you know, thinking about that and, and using that, even if it takes you a little bit longer, right? Instead of doubling in 12 months, maybe a double in 18 months, but you hit your burn multiple. I think that might be sometimes a better way to look at it, but you know what? Check with your board, check with your investors and ask them about, you know, what they're thinking. I'll provide a slightly different perspective on that question because Mark, I think one of the things you mentioned was like sales of around a million dollars in revenue and product market fit. 
Yeah. Um, and by the way, Tony, I love that answer, by the way. But just to share a different perspective, I mean, one, like I think that product market fit is by and large on the, the founders. Um, I think it's really difficult to bring salespeople in if you don't have that. Um, and then even once you do, like, I think it's kind of hard to, to figure out sales efficiency, but ultimately what you're trying to do is figure out, okay, I bring this rep in and I pay them, you know, a salary of 70, 80, a hundred, whatever it is. Um, plus hopefully a bonus because they're, they're hitting, uh, their numbers. What revenue are they actually bringing into the organization? I mean, that's pretty simple math right there. If you're paying somebody a hundred grand and they're only closing 50 grand, then you've got a real problem. And that may be because you didn't figure out product market fit and you thought, well, you know, let me just hire a sales guy and, and we'll figure it out. That's oftentimes the mistake that early stage companies make as opposed to having the founder get out there and go, okay, we know these customers buy from us and this is how we get to them. Now I got to figure out how to hire a couple of salespeople and get them to do that somewhat efficiently. But then to your point, Tony, I think like getting really deep in the numbers is really hard when you get like one or two reps. Mm. There's just so many variables going on at that stage. I think there is an extent where you're just trying to put numbers on the board um, and then make it, you know, make it better from there. And I think kind of one way of thinking about it, so C, Series A, um, I sometimes try and just think about it as product market fit, and that's not a binary state. You're kind of either leading up to product market fit and totally right, Eddie. And once you've achieved it, you're basically trying to hit go-to-market fit, right? How can I make this sales motion repeatable and ideally efficient? And I think depending on where you are, um, you need to optimize for one or the other, right? If you're before product market fit, the one thing you need to do is that. And you know, once if it's achieved that and it's always a moving uh, target, then you need to focus on go-to-market fit, and and that will require trial and error. You will you will do things that don't scale. You will do things that you know screw up. But eventually, once you come out of this, and this is around five million to ten million, you will basically be saying, "Hey, this is the ICP. This is how we go after them. This is how long it takes. This is our ACV. This is our conversion rate. All of that stuff basically will by then be a little bit more settled and uh, and easier than also to math out, if you will." Yeah. And you raise a really good point there, Tony. Like as you describe that, I'm almost a lot more interested in the process than the financials. Obviously financials are really important, but if you can map that out and say like, this is the step-by-step process that we go to market, you know, that's, that's the recipe for everything that we're talking about here with this bottoms up approach, right? How do you plan bottoms up if you don't know what the process is to go to market? I think you need to. Um, I think you need to have a certain kind of maturity before that really makes sense. Um, sure. And I think then the other answer is um, you will probably have some assumptions about it though, right? So when you're talking two or three million into your journey, you will be around for two or three years or whatever. You will have some understanding, some data to base it on. You might not have twenty or thirty folks to execute it. It's a smaller team, but there will be some assumptions around it, right? And and I I think. Having, you know, thinking about assumptions is a very financy thing to say and kind of, you know, think about, but see it as guardrails, you know, see it as like, hey, this is where I want to stay within in terms of my sales cycle, super important. Many people forget how important sales cycles are and conversion rates and ACV bands and so forth. Um, and try and, you know, try and set those guardrails in order to kind of hit the, uh, hit the, you know, efficiency or the growth or whatever you want to do, right? And the same goes for, you know, can we make this repeatable? You know, is this a thing where I uh, can hire this the same kind of folks again and again and again and, you know, scale through that? Or is this something that has been exhausted very quickly? And usually Google searches and B2B SaaS, everything is a niche. There's, you know, it's not like there's millions of people, you know, looking for 
I don't know, one specific category, it's very niche, right? And you're gonna you're gonna exhaust that probably within your first year of, of playing around with Google search. Yeah, I think that that's probably a better way of saying what I was trying to say and really like honing in on that repeatable motion. So I'm not saying that like you need to figure out all those numbers um, right after you achieve product market fit. But as you figure out your go to market and you think about like, okay, like we just landed this customer. What did we do? How do we land the next customer in the same way? We're evolving from founder-led sales to hiring account executives. We've got one account executive that's, that's you know, hitting their numbers. How does the second account executive get there? Um, how do we make this repeatable? And then that lends itself into like these efficiency metrics as you grow. Fantastic. Well, I think we are at time. Thank you guys, everybody for joining. Tony, thank you very much for joining us today as our guest. Thanks for having me.